Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. In the High Center Studios of Messiah College of Grantham, Pennsylvania, where frankly we're a little bit sick of the culture wars, this is the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. Now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Thank you, Drew. And just to clarify, we are not sick and tired of actually discussing the culture wars, as you'll see this episode. But welcome, everyone, to the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Drew, we have a special guest here in the studio today. Some of you who remember back in season one, you remember we not only had our studio producer, uh, Michaela, who has now been um, replaced by Josh Lowry behind the glass, but we also had an intern, Drew, and she's back today. We have Nilsa Durley Hermeling, who's with us, our original intern. How old is she now, Drew? She's two years old. Two years old, and she was just telling me some great stuff before we went on the air. What was that, Nilsa? Uh, N. Yes, Nilsa starts with an N. Nilsa starts with an N, right? So we have some extra help in the studio today. You want to give me a high five? She still won't give me a high <laughs> no. five yet. Anyway, Drew. I've taught her to stay away from New Jersey. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> right. You could find a picture of her, though, where I was holding her in my office with that George Washington bobblehead. She seemed to like that when she was younger. Maybe you haven't had this experience yet, Drew, but one of the most frustrating aspects of historical scholarship is when you write something up for publication or maybe a conference paper or something like that, and then another scholar releases a book that makes you think differently about your work or would have been, the book would have been an immense help to your work, but it's just too late to incorporate those ideas into your argument because your project has already gone to press or you've already printed it out or you know something to that effect. Now, I, I can definitely think of a couple of scholars working on similar topics as me. I haven't had this particular issue just yet, but I do keep a close eye on a couple of other scholars just to make sure that I don't accidentally come away looking redundant at a conference or something like yeah, that. Yeah, so you could quickly incorporate some exactly. of their new ideas, at least, the, at least in the footnote, yeah. right? 
Now tell me, John, could this be a reference to the new book we will be discussing today? Actually, Drew, it is. As many of our listeners know, I, I just finished a book about evangelicals and Donald Trump. Uh, it is entitled Believe Me, The Evangelical Road to Donald Trump, and it will be appearing with Erdman's Publishing in the late spring of 2018. In chapter two of that book, I trace the rise of the Christian right over the course of the last 60 years or so. If you've read the blog or listened to the podcast, you've heard me talk about the usual suspects, race, abortion, prayer and Bible reading in schools, immigration, gay marriage, etc. But our guest today has convinced me that questions of sexual politics should probably have played a more prominent role in my narrative. Well, I mean, wouldn't wouldn't your treatment of abortion and gay marriage fit into the realm of sexual politics? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I haven't completely ignored that subject. But R. Marie Griffith's book, Moral Combat, How Sex Divided American Christians and Fractured American Politics, has convinced me that these issues go much deeper than just abortion and gay marriage. They also include the prominent role that issues such as patriarchy, debates over sex ed in schools, birth control, interracial marriage, all of these things have played a role, I think, in the evangelical turn towards Donald Trump in 2016. In moments like this, I just remind myself that scholarship is an activity of learning in public. No one can actually have the final word on a subject, and instead we should welcome exchanges such as these. So I think that's an optimistic view of, of what you're referring to here. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, sometimes we don't even think about scholarship as kind of holistically. You know, I think the fact that we're actually doing this podcast today, you know, is part of my sort of larger holistic kind of scholarly pursuit. So, I, again, I really wish I could have engaged more deeply with Griffith's book. But, um, you know, you can get the podcast today for the uh, for the continued discussion of uh, sexual politics and the rise of the Christian right. Well, I think it's going to be a really informative interview today with Marie Griffith. But before we get to that, Tell us, Drew, how we can connect or you out there can connect uh, with the podcast. First of all, those who follow the blog may have noticed our recent announcement. We have been invited to be an inaugural podcast on the newly launched Recorded History Podcast Network. This is a curated collection of some very diverse podcasts with one thing in common, an eye towards history. Some are snarky, some are more serious, some are broad like ours, covering a wide range of topics, while others take a very deep look at one narrow topic. Regardless, we think this is a great opportunity to build our audience with other podcasts doing similar work. In fact, you're going to start hearing promos from some of the other shows during our episodes. If you want to check out some of our fellow Recorded History podcasts, head over to recordedhistory.net. This is also a way for us to start generating some advertising revenue. As longtime listeners will have noticed, there was an ad at the top of the show as well as an ad at the end. We will also take a short ad break halfway through the show. Obviously, this is a change, and we hope that longtime listeners don't find the additional ad spots intrusive. However, podcasts as a medium are growing because they are free to listeners, which is awesome, and it's a great way to engage with new ideas without having to pay a subscription. However, quality podcasts also require investment in order to produce them. Joining the Recorded History Network will help us keep improving while providing you with quality content. We will continue to rely on our sponsors as well. On that note, we do want to thank our gold sponsors, Lisa DeGuardi, Ron Schooler, Kate Logan, and Gretchen Adams. And as always, many thanks to Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. If you want to become a sponsor of the show, please head over to thewaveimprovement.com and click support. 
And the best way to spread the word about the podcast is to take it to social media. So follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast on Twitter and Facebook. And consider giving a positive review on iTunes or Stitcher. Yeah, again, we really appreciate everyone's support out there. We are excited to be working with the Recorded History Podcast Network. But that's only going to take us so far. We still need supporters. Uh, Head over to our Patreon page. Donate. You know, we still have mugs and books, signed books and so forth for our patrons. It's really uh, our Patreon page that helps us continue to go from week to week here at the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. So once again, I want to thank all of our sponsors. Thank you all so much for listening. And uh, we hope that we can continue here to to bring some really quality history podcasting to, uh, to the Internet. Yeah, did you hear Nilsa giggling in the background? I did hear her a little bit. Yeah, yeah well, I've been trying to get her to give me the hot, still trying to get her to give me the high five. Well, I'm just won't. saying she needs diapers, so yeah. help me get that diaper money. That's right, right. She also she also just cracked open her second juice box here, <laughs> whatever that is. So uh, you know, Drew's going to need some some uh, some support here, right? Help Drew raise his daughter. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Well, enough commercials. Though. <laughs> well, with that, John, I think you have some comments that are relevant to today's conversation. All was not well in the city upon a hill. John Winthrop, the governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony, was nervous. He and his fellow Puritan leaders had come to this region they called New England to build a society on the teachings of the Bible. And not just any old teachings of the Bible, the right teachings of the Bible. Winthrop and his fellow Puritan clergymen used the term orthodoxy to describe the proper way of interpreting the scriptures. The Puritans had fled England in pursuit of religious freedom. The society they planned to build in Massachusetts Bay would also be defined by religious freedom, properly understood. Settlers were free to conform to Puritan orthodoxy. Those unwilling to practice such freedom were removed from the colony. Only six years following the settlement of Massachusetts, Puritan orthodoxy, and by extension, Winthrop's City on a Hill, was threatened by a band of ministers and lay people known as the Antinomians. Prominent Massachusetts clergy like John Cotton and John Wheelwright criticized the defenders of Puritan orthodoxy for teaching what they called a covenant of works, a view of salvation that they believed put too much emphasis on moral striving as a way to be made right before God. For the Antinomians... Salvation came through faith alone. The Puritan leaders also believed in justification by faith, but over the years had developed an understanding of conversion that required a series of steps, such as the recognition of sinfulness, the acknowledgement of the need for repentance, and eventually God's bestowal of salvation. For the antinomians, such steps were not necessary for salvation. They were something one had to do in order to be saved. This was salvation by works, not grace. In a Protestant society in which salvation came by faith alone and not good works, to claim that the religious and political leaders of a colony defined by orthodoxy were teaching salvation by works was not only heretical, but dangerous. In Winthrop's Boston, Dissenting views could not be tolerated. There was only one way to read the Bible, 
to question the official teaching was the equivalent of promoting disorder, undermining unity, and challenging God's plan for his new chosen people. To make matters worse, at least one of the antinomian leaders was a woman. Anne Hutchinson had been teaching antinomianism to both men and women in her house, which was a particularly risky move since she lived right across the street from Winthrop. In 1637, Winthrop and the Boston magistrates had had enough. They arrested Hutchinson and brought her to trial. As the proceedings began, Winthrop spoke first. Quote, Mrs. Hutchison, you are called here as one of those who have troubled the peace of the Commonwealth and the churches here. You are known to be a woman that hath had a great share in the promoting and divulging of those opinions that are causes of this trouble. And you have spoken diverse things as we have been informed, very prejudicial to the honor of the churches and ministers thereof. And you have maintained a meeting and an assembly in your house that hath been condemned by the general assembly as a thing not tolerable, nor commonly in the sight of God, nor fitting for your sex. Hutchinson was accused of theological seduction. The magistrate's use of the term seduce to describe Hutchinson's teachings would have invoked thoughts of Eve, Potiphar's wife, Jezebel, and Delilah, particularly among the biblically literate Puritans of Massachusetts Bay. But Hutchinson refused to waver. She refused to violate her conscience. When she claimed that her theological beliefs, and by extension antinomianism, was correct because God told her it was correct through divine revelation, Winthrop and the magistrates who believed revelation only came from the Bible were done listening she would be banished from the colony. As she exited the Boston church, a young disciple named Mary Dyer was there to hold her hand. Mary Dyer and her husband, William Dyer, a Boston hat maker, were among those who attended Hutchinson's home Bible study. About a month before Hutchinson exited the Boston church, ready to head into exile in Rhode Island, Mary gave birth to a stillborn baby that was severely deformed. Hutchinson was present at the birth. So was Mary Dyer's midwife, Jane Hawkins. The Puritans described deformed babies as monsters. They were a sign of God's displeasure with the parents, usually due to their lack of faith or some kind of heretical belief. Reverend John Cotton advised the Dyers to bury the baby privately and seek God for wisdom as to why this had happened to them. As Hutchinson and Dyer exited the church hand in hand, a church member asked about the young woman accompanying the excommunicated heretic. Someone said that she was Mary Dyer, the woman who had had the quote-unquote monstrous birth. Word traveled fast in a small community like 1630s Boston. When John Winthrop caught wind of this conversation, he began to investigate. Was there some kind of connection between Hutchinson's heresy and this monstrous birth? Winthrop no doubt knew the answer to this question well before he asked it. 
Winthrop found Jane Hawkins, Mary Dyer's midwife, and interrogated her. But the governor's morbid curiosity did not stop there. Shortly after Hawkins described the body of the so-called monstrous baby, Winthrop decided that he needed to see it for himself. He had the body dug up so that he and 100 witnesses could examine it. Later, using what he saw and Hawkins' testimony, he described the baby in print. The eyes stood far out. So did the mouth. The nose was hooking upward and the breast and back was full of sharp prickles, like a thorn back. The navel and all the belly with the distinction of the sex were where the lower part of the back and hip should have been. And where those back parts were on the side, the face stood. The arms and hands with the thighs and legs were as other children's, but instead of toes, it had upon each foot three claws with talons like a young fowl. Upon the back, above the belly, it had two great holes like mouths, and in each of them stuck out a piece of flesh. It had no forehead, but in the pace thereof, above the eyes, four horns, whereof two were above an inch long, hard and sharp. The other two were somewhat shorter. What Hawkins and later Winthrop and his 100 friends witnessed was a case of anencephaly, a serious birth defect in which a baby is born without parts of the brain and skull. If Winthrop's description is accurate, it also sounds as if the baby suffered from a severe case of spina bifida and perhaps other deformities. Much of the description was also no doubt exaggerated. But Winthrop was not interested in making a medical diagnosis. In his mind, such a monstrous birth was a clear sign from God that the antinomians were wrong and that the excommunication of Hutchinson was justified. The monstrous baby confirmed that Winthrop, the magistrates, and the other defenders of Puritan orthodoxy were firmly on God's side in the antinomian crisis. The city upon a hill had faced a significant threat and God was not only punishing those who dared to challenge it, but confirming his special care over the Commonwealth. Winthrop got further divine confirmation that he had handled the Hutchinson trial correctly when he learned that the Rhode Island exile had also given birth to a monstrous baby. The attending physician at the birth, Dr. John Clark, provided the report. Quote, Mistress Hutchinson, being big with child, and growing toward the time of her labor, as other women do, she brought forth not one, as Mistress Dyer did, but, what was more strange to amazement, thirty monstrous births, or thereabout, at once, some of them bigger, some lesser, some of one shape, some of another, few of any perfect shape, none at all of them, as far as I could ever learn, of human shape. Hutchinson's birth, which happened about a year after Dyer's, was one of the first recorded cases of a molar pregnancy, a condition in which a growth forms inside the womb during the pregnancy, accompanied by small cysts. What Dr. Clark had witnessed was no doubt grape-sized tissue particles from the mole growing in Anne Hutchinson's uterus. Again, Winthrop had no interest in a medical diagnosis. Like Dyer's monstrous birth, Hutchinson's monstrous birth was a sign from God. 
outspoken female heretics would not stand in the way of the Lord's providential plan for Massachusetts. Winthrop used both of these monstrous births to shore up the very close relationship between Puritan orthodoxy and the government of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and even solidify his own authority as the colony's godly leader. Indeed, sexual politics has a long history in America. Our guest today is R. Marie Griffith, director of the John C. Danforth Center on Religion and Politics at Washington University in St. Louis. A scholar of religion, gender, and American politics, Griffith is the author of several books, including God's Daughters, Evangelical Women and the Power of Submission, and Born Again Bodies, Flesh and Spirit in American Christianity. Her current book, published in 2017 with Basic Books, is Moral Combat, How Sex Divided American Christians and Fractured American Politics. We are very excited today on the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast to have Marie Griffith with us. Uh, You just heard her introduction. Uh, She is the author of a great new book, Moral Combat, How Sex Divided American Christians and Fractured American Politics. Marie, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me, John. Let's let's just start with a little background about what you do. Um, a lot of our listeners are not academics; they're not scholars, uh, but they are interested in uh, the kind of stuff that you write about in your book. But tell us about uh, where you work, the Danforth Center on Religion and Politics at Washington University. What is what is that place all about? Sure. So so we're a center that's really committed both to the academic study of how religion and politics have intersected in U.S. history um, and also just to the broader public education in that very complex subject, thinking historically about the role religion has played in American politics really since the very beginning and its very complicated role today. So we, of course, have a constituency of students and and others at Washington University in St. Louis, where the center is located. But we also really very much try to reach the broader public through an online journal and through a whole range of of things to sort of really um, be out there in the world. So not just in in the ivory ivory tower. Good. So it's so you're really interested in this kind of and and what a great time, right, to be directing a center on religion and politics. I know. You know, I'm sure I'm sure, um, you know, you're also there for the press and so forth for questions about these things. And and uh, um, and you have absolutely and you have you sponsor conferences. Right. And we do. We have a lot of. We have a lot of public events here. They're all free and we videotape everything so that we, you know, we have viewers actually in other parts of the country. Um, you know, when we do these things, we we bring in people that we think are really thoughtful speakers across the political spectrum yeah. um, and across, you know, religious traditions and and irreligion and, and all of it. So we, we really try to... Um, um, I guess in some way create better conversations around this this uh, intersection of religion and politics in the U.S. Absolutely, yeah. and I've been a great admirer of everything you are you're doing over there, out there in St. Louis. Um, tell us how tell us how we can learn more about the Danforth Center. You have a website, um, or I'm sure you do, but what is the web address or? Yes, yeah, so we how do. We connect? So uh, the 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 web address is just rap dot. Wustel, which is the WashU, uh, yeah. you know, acronym W U S T L. dot edu, and uh, 
We're also on Facebook and Twitter, and we're very active on social media. And yes, we'd love to have people join us. Excellent. Excellent. Let's dive in then to this great book, um, Moral Combat. Uh, I finished it uh, a couple days ago in preparation uh, for the for the interview. Um, absolutely, absolutely loved it. And if if you go back, Marie, and you listen to the intro, um, you know, I, I just finished this book, which will be out later in the spring on Trump. And it's one of those things where I wish I had read your book while I was writing that one so I could have engaged with it more. Um, I think I may have slipped it into a footnote somewhere with the with the with the classic, you know, this just came out at press time. Kind of. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's very kind of you. Yeah, I had to do that with a couple of books, too. Right, right. Tell us um, this is a book about uh, the relationship between uh, sexual politics, if you will, sex in America um, and how uh, these debates over sex in America uh, has really kind of shaped a lot of what today we know as the culture wars. But on the other hand, it's not. it seems like you're not just interested in the culture wars of, say, the 1970s forward, but you're also interested in kind of the longer trajectory of how we got uh, to to the culture wars. And you describe in this book this, this tension or this conflict uh, in American religious life, religious culture, between change and tradition. I think there's other parts. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe I think I remember you talking about a tension between uh, fear and maybe progress is my word. I'm not sure if you use that term or not. But but this tension is at the heart of everything in the book. Uh, elaborate for me a little bit more on this tension between change and tradition, progress and fear. Um, as it has played out over the course of the of the 20th century. Yeah, sure. And let me just say thanks for your kind words about the book. I, I really appreciate Good. that, John. Um, really respect the work you do. And so that's high praise coming from you. Um, yeah, you know, it, it, well, let me just say the, the book began with a question of why is it that sex seems to be at the center of our culture wars, our political conflicts, over and over and over again in a way that if you look at Europe or you look at many parts of the world, as conflicted as, as many places are, sex is has not seemed to have that same kind of political power, you know, over and over and over again as it's had in the U.S. Yeah. And, and I really did sort of, you know, I wanted to look past the 1960s, which is where a lot of the, the histories of the culture wars essentially begin for, for good reasons and for understandable reasons, right. and really try to think, when did this start? You know, and, and so what I, you know, my answer to that question is it really began with um, women's suffrage and with the, the movement for women to gain equal voting rights that, that sort of deeply divided the country. Uh, and, you know, we often think that that was sort of, a, I don't know, an easy victory, or right. at least it was one that people accepted once it was done. But but it really wasn't. And and that's the beginning where I see this kind of conflict that you're describing and that I try to outline between people who uh, are, are really wanting to hold on to what they see as a traditional, you know, mode of being and and those who are, are much more accepting of and maybe even enthusiastic about changes in that social order that seem to them to be equalizing, um, you know, roles in society or promoting justice, you know, whether it's right. gender justice or racial justice. And, 
you know, the longer I thought about it, I really saw this as just a, a, a deep theme in our history, you know, for, for at least the past hundred years. Yeah, it seems like it's as I read the book, I thought about the way in which uh, the traditionalists always seem to be. And maybe this is just inherent within traditionalism. I don't know, seem to be also always the reactors or the reactionaries. Right. So you have, you know, we'll mm-hmm. talk about some of these characters in the in, in the book. Uh, most you lead with these kinds of um, the, the progressive the progressive characters. Right. People mm-hmm. like Margaret Sanger and so forth. And then the, does does. Does this kind of this kind of conflict over sex is it always? I, I don't even know what the other alternative would be, but is it always about traditionalists sort of freaking out, right? <laughs> or, mm-hmm. or 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 just traditionalists expressing their fear in kind of extreme ways about social and cultural change? Um, is there any way in which um, I don't know? Would this? Would this go the other way? Would the progressives come out on the offensive and attack, you know, um, fundamentalist views on race or, or, I'm sorry, sex ed or birth control or something like that? Oh, oh, very much so. I mean, I think the two sides have sort of warred against yeah. each other. And and really, rhetorically, you know, each has sort of had a strategy of mobilizing their own people or mobilizing people to their side by warning people that the other side was winning. Right, <laughs> right. right. You know, and, and that's not a, a new dynamic here by any stretch, but it's very interesting to think about that and how that has played out. But the reason I, you know, I do focus uh, the chapter's around, uh, typically, most of them are fairly progressive figures who lead movements for social reform and social change pertaining to women's rights or, uh, you know, rights for people or, you know, changes in sexual behaviors and and, uh, ethics, really, in American life. And so then the other side is typically sort of reacting against them. And I really want to understand what was so threatening about right. those shifts in uh, gender and sexual norms. Yeah, great. Now, your book, we, we talked about these characters uh, just sort of generically that, that kind of start each chapter. But, you know, these characters in terms of kind of gender, gender studies and gender and religion or, you know, religious history, um, these are not like your usual suspects, right. That are, mm-hmm. that are kind of showing up in these chapters. So, so I thought it would be, uh, I thought it would be a, a good way to approach sort of this segment of the, of the interview by looking at, uh, you know, we, I don't think we can cover them all, but looking at a few of these characters as a kind of window into the kind of larger, uh, questions about sex and, and religious culture, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I've listed six or seven of them here. I don't think we're going to get through them all, but, but a, f- a few, just to kind of give our listeners, I think a, a feel for, for how the book is structured and the way in which you're using these, these individual stories to get at these larger questions. So let's start with, um, let's start with Margaret Sanger. Um, mm-hmm. this, she may not be familiar to some of our listeners who was Margaret mm-hmm. Sanger and how is she serve as a kind of window into this kind of first, uh, sexual culture war or whatever you want to call it that you write about in, in the opening chapter of the book. Yeah. So Margaret Sanger was originally a nurse. Um, she had been born into a very poor Catholic, uh, family and, um, had sort of lived a pretty poverty stricken, uh, upbringing and then had worked as a nurse in New York in among 
poverty-stricken populations, and that sort of became her passion. Uh, she became a political activist in part uh, for this and, and was really focused on helping the poor. And she came to believe that one of the keys was uh, for poor women and poor families to be able to control their reproductive lives and not sort of, uh, you know, be forced over and over again to have baby after baby after baby after right. baby, whether right. they wanted to or not. Um, and so birth control became really her life's passion, I mean, really for the rest of her right, life. Right. And I write about her heyday, in, uh, or her earliest heyday in the 1920s, when she actually quite successfully um, made birth control a public topic of conversation, to the consternation of some conservatives, particularly the Catholic hierarchy at that right. time, um, and also her incredible brilliance in turning Protestants, I mean, very religious Protestants, yeah. uh, on her side and, and for them to become in favor of birth control. Yeah. At what point, I mean, it's sort of getting off track a little bit, but at what point do, you know, you know progressive Protestants, mainline Protestants seem to embrace birth control, but, you know, most today in the sort of evangelical community, you know, I'm thinking, you know, even contemporary evangelicals would, would also embrace birth control. At what point, you tend to suggest many of the conservative fundamentalists who are opposed to Sanger, um, and I know this is not part of your longer story, but just maybe help me understand this. At what point do evangelicals begin to embrace birth control uh, as, a, as a, you know, as a thing? Yeah, well, you, know? you know, evangelicals at that time, yes, some of the most fundamentalists, okay. uh, you know, probably did not embrace birth control, but on the whole, Protestants did yeah. not have a problem with birth control because okay. uh, it was framed in the context of improving marriage, marriage yeah. happiness. Yeah. And so, you know, they weren't thinking birth control for single people so that they could go off and just have right, sex right, uh, promiscuously. Right. That wasn't their goal. But their goal was to allow married couples to have more control over when they would bear children. Right, so right. there really wasn't at that okay. time a split among Protestants on birth control. Um, now, Sanger, you know, the, the interesting point you make about, you know, while they weren't just, you know, this wasn't kind of free sex. This wasn't like the 1960s, right? Um, Sanger mm -hmm. is also, right, putting her into the, the sort of historical context, right, of the 20s. Sanger is also uh, probably much more conservative on these questions than, say, uh, you know, the free love movement in the 1960s, right? She sees this as being part of, uh, uh, you know, within marriage or within traditional families. Is that correct? Well, she was certainly smart enough to market it that way. Yeah, I think, yeah. you know, her own life, uh, she had lived a traditional life. She was married twice and she had uh, three children, one of whom died tragically uh, quite young. So, you know, she was a family woman. Right. But along the way, she did also, you know, kind of open up um, yeah. her own life and live something more of a, you know, free love or whatever right, we sure, would call it sure. life somewhat more sexually open and, right. and really saw that as women's right. Yeah. But on the whole, you know, it really was, uh, you know, she still knew that even people who didn't want to go that far uh, could benefit from birth control as, as um, you know, as a, a tool for better marriages. Yeah. And very interesting. Um, I didn't know much about Sanger. I hadn't read much about her until I read the book. It's, it's a, it's a really great opening chapter. Let's move to the next chapter and here the chapter is on um, censorship uh, of literature for mm -hmm. the most part. And the, the main character here uh, is D.H. Lawrence. Who was D.H. Mm -hmm. Lawrence and how does he fit into this story about censorship? Sure. Well, D.H. Lawrence, if he hasn't been for 
forgotten completely now, is probably known for one thing, and that is uh, as the author of uh, the infamous Lady Chatterley's right. Lover, right. which was, um, and, and that is actually what the, that chapter focuses on are controversies over that novel. Yeah. Uh, the novel came out in 1929 and, you know, it was really uh, instantly censored right. um, in the, in, in the uh, United States. And um, he went to great lengths to argue that he was not uh, presenting pornography, that this wasn't just graphic sex for right. the sake of titillation, but that he was really trying to present the beauty of physical love and of the physical world and right. of the body to a repressed culture that didn't want to hear it. And he sort of became a, a folk hero uh, to many along the way, on up into really through the 1960s and 1970s. His star fell a little bit after that. Um, but of course, then he became the, the bitter enemy of many of the conservatives as well, who only saw uh, his work as being porno pornographic. Right. Now, Lawrence, this, um, Lawrence publishes Lady Chatterley's um, lo Lover after, mm -hmm. it's towards the end of his career, right? Doesn't he die shortly yes. thereafter? He does. Yes. He died at 44 of right. tuberculosis and the, and the book hadn't come out much before that. So he was already pretty infamous. I mean, he'd already had a okay. few books censored, but nothing had the sort of um, power that this right. one did. I mean, a lot of people think this was his best novel, or it was certainly right. the one that appealed to the most readers. And um, and I think that's partly why, you know, the trials and all that went on and on and on over his work right. were mostly about Lady Chatterley. Do you think it's fair to say that perhaps he was even more controversial after death than before because of oh. this? Or? Oh, Oh, I think so. Yeah. And, and, you know, to say to your, to your listeners who don't know this, you know, the, the love story is also adulterous. It's not right. simply about, you know, sex between two single people that would be seen as pornographic. It's about two people who were married to other people falling in love and having a relationship and leaving the spouses and, and going together. So it was also upending, of course, you know, marriage norms, right, um, which right. was extremely controversial. Okay. Let's let's move on here. And the next big issue you you tackle is uh, interracial sex, interracial marriage. Uh, and here the the main player is uh, the anthropologist Ruth Benedict. Tell us a little bit more about Ruth Benedict and, and how this all connects with uh, this this debate over interracial marriage and sex. Absolutely. Well, and this was sort of an unexpected one for me, uh, yeah. this chapter. But, you know, what I. Uh, looked at um, these controversies that really emerged around, I mean, these are around World War II that had to do with race and racial science. And they had a profound sexual component to them. So Ruth Benedict was a very well-known anthropologist. She was already very well known by the time of World War II for her book, Patterns of Culture. Mm -hmm. She'd been a student of Franz Boas and taught at Columbia University. And she was one of these thinkers like Boas who came to see that race was sort of a human construction, right. that there really were no deep differences um, that were so big as that we could somehow divide people into races. And she really spent much of her career trying to, um, you know, eradicate racism, frankly, in the public schools. She wrote public school curricula. She did all kinds of things. Um, and one of the things she did was write a pamphlet that was distributed through the armed services um, to soldiers who were fighting in World War II that essentially made this argument that there are no races that the races, so-called, have mixed 
throughout human history. And so none of us is any sort of a, of a pure race, and therefore there's no reason why people can't mix races today. Right. And a controversy blew up um, on the floor of the Senate and in both houses of Congress, actually, among uh, Jim Crow uh, white senators uh, from yeah. Mississippi and other southern states who, you know, found us, of course, blasphemous right. and uh, argued very vociferously against this, in part on Christian grounds, yeah. uh, making the case that God had separated the races. Right, right. So they were they were invoking uh, some. I, mean, I think this is where Strom Thurmond kind of is. Just is, is that right, or is he in a later chapter? I can't remember. Is he? He he. I sort of name him as the successor to Theodore Bilbo. Theodore that's Bilbo right. from Mississippi was really the main guy that's right. uh, in that's all right. of that. Yeah. And um and there the the opposition to Benedict. I mean, it it seems to me they're pretty much invoking some of the same racial arguments, white supremacist arguments that go all the way back to the, you know, to the 19th century, even the 18th century. There seems to be very, is there, is there anything unique about their arguments or are they just kind of tapping into this old, you know, white supremacy argument that goes back as far as slavery? Oh, sure. I think they're, they're very much tapping into that and don't yeah. want to, to let that go. It's about the protection of white women's virtue right, and right. the purity of the races and all of this. But, you know, the, the charges against her were so vicious, she was already starting to be called a communist, uh, yeah. you know, even on the floors of Congress. And then she died, actually, quite in the midst of this whole controversy, mm -hmm. or there's there's no doubt she would have been called before uh, McCarthy and, uh, yeah, you know, in a yeah. few years later. Now, some of our readers may not be familiar either with the next, uh, the next character, um, uh, <laughs> Alfred Kinsey. Tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about this guy and why he was so controversial um, on these issues. Sure. So Alfred Kinsey was a biologist who, uh, who taught at Indiana University, studied gall wasps, um, but he became fascinated by human sexual behavior and by, I think, a suspicion that Americans in particular weren't necessarily living up to the uh, sexual norms and ethics that they claimed to uphold. So he and a team of researchers set out to interview as many people as they possibly could. They interviewed thousands upon thousands of men and women, and this resulted in the publication of two studies, Sexual Behavior in the Human Male, which came out in 1948, and Sexual Behavior in the Human Female, which came mm -hmm. out in 1953. And to summarize, you know, both books essentially argued this, that people were having a lot more sex before marriage, um, a lot more different types of sex, including same-sex relations. Um, you know, masturbation rates were much higher. Far fewer women were virgins when they got married. Right. Then society allowed and all this kind of thing. And of course, um, the controversy hit the roof. These were both bestsellers right. and um, and garnered tremendous uh, angry reactions to them. Now, here here, you know, we you know, there's the typical kind of critique by sort of, you know, Catholics, conservative Protestants, you know. Um, Reinhold Niebuhr is not very happy about Kinsey's yeah. stuff either. I mean, yes. representing the main line. Right. Tell, tell me, tell us a little bit how Niebuhr responds, but also how the rest of his kind of fellow mainline Protestants kind of disagreed with him on these questions. You know, how was this received amid mainline Protestantism? 
Yeah, well, so what's so interesting is that a lot of mainline Protestants were really pretty friendly to Kinsey. Yeah. You know, so the critique against him was that he wanted to um, demean American morals and he wanted to sort of create a society where everybody felt freer to have sex uh, outside of marriage. The the more mainline uh, liberal folks were saying, no, he's just giving us science about what people are actually doing. We can use this pastorally. Right. can right. help our, our people in our congregations who are having marriage problems or struggling with their sexuality and all of these ways. So they felt like there were real uses. And they, they wrote letters to Kinsey. They invited him to church uh, congregations. He spoke in Christian and Jewish congregations mm-hmm. all around the country. But Reinhold Niebuhr, as you say, and some of the older figures like yeah. him, because he was, you know, pretty old by right, then, right. Um, reacted very very strongly, you know, against this and felt that he was that he was really promoting immorality um, in, in a sort of terrible way. Um, so, yeah, there was a split, you yeah, know, in yeah. those in those mainline groups, for sure. Now, this, did Kinsey have a did Kinsey have an agenda or did he just present himself as kind of, well, I'm just a neutral scholar who's studying this and you can use it any way you want or what or was there some sense in which. Uh, Niebuhr and the more conservative critics had a point. I mean, what was what was Kinsey's motivation? Was he just kind of? I mean, he could never be the ob- completely objective scholar, right? But was he just like, I'm fascinated right. with this topic, and here's what I found? Or was there some kind of political agenda? Well, it would probably take a psychoanalyst to really answer that <laughs> right. question because I think that remains a controversial question. Yeah. Certainly he presented himself and I think he wanted to be the perfectly objective scientist right. about all of this. But there's no doubt that there was a lot of personal interest um, you know, in these kinds of questions and that he and his wife began leading a, a very unconventional sexual life themselves. Right, right. And you know that I think some of this probably was somewhat personal for him, uh, maybe same-sex desires. Um, now, there's a lot of uh, false information floating around about him now, you know, that he was involved in pedophilia and all kinds yeah, of things yeah. that is just completely uh, no evidence for whatsoever. So um, so I don't think there was, you know, criminal behavior, uh, certainly no evidence of that. But, but I do think these were very personal questions about why are these sexual norms so strong? You know, what what would happen if we lived in a world with with fewer rules? Right. And I think he was drawn to that. Our times our times rapidly running out here, but I just just so our readers know, so they have a good sense. Our listeners, I'm sorry, so they have a good sense of um, what else is in this book. You cover um, sexual education, sex education. Uh, you cover, and that there, Mary Steichen Calderon. Uh, uh, most people probably have never heard of her, but you can read that chapter. Uh, great chapter on um, abortion, particularly uh, pro-choice Catholics and Francis Kissling, who, again, most people probably have never heard of before. And then a very interesting chapter on um, on Anita Hill and Paula Jones. They may be uh-huh. they may be uh, figures that you know maybe pop into uh, pop into to people's minds. Uh, a very good chapter on sexual harassment um, and race. Now, now, I wish we could have more time for you to develop your thoughts on those chapters, but get the book. Um, what I want to do is I want to <laughs> jump ahead. I want to jump ahead a little bit. Um, and again, looking at these kind of shifting alliances, you know, uh, on, on these questions of sex, it seems to me that in almost every case, um, there is a, a, 
a kind of alliance between uh, it's certainly not a theological alliance, but a kind of political cultural alliance between conservative Protestants and and Catholics, Roman Catholics. And they're mm-hmm. often lined up against mainline Protestants on most of these sexual questions. Um, you know, for those for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with this sort of uh, nuances here, why do you why do you think this is the case? Why do why? I mean, this, you know, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, you're still finding Protestants and Catholics kind of at war each, with each other theologically, especially conservative evangelicals. Right. The You know, you still get a lot of this kind of, you know, the Pope is the Antichrist and these kinds of things. But yet they do find yeah. partnerships here and there. Uh, on these cultural issues. Now, the question I guess I have is why, and then, and then, are they are they just kind of both taking the same positions on this, separate from one another, or are they working together to sort of save the culture or you know defend traditionalism? That's such a great question. <laughs> um, you know, I think for a long time they were not working together so much. I mean, these were very uh, these were communities that were very suspicious of each other. Yeah. You're absolutely right that a lot of conservative Protestants saw uh, the Catholic Church or the Pope as the Antichrist. They and yet by about the 1970s they realize. I mean, some some leaders, some key leaders right. realize people like Phyllis Schlafly on. On the one side, on the Catholic side, and uh, Jerry Falwell on the Protestant side, folks like that realize how much they have in common when it came to gender right, and sexuality. Right. They had had nothing else in common, they thought. They thought. Um, had totally different models of church leadership and everything else. But they, when it came to gender and sexuality, the conservatives on both sides found they had everything in common, and they yeah. did begin to work together. Uh, abortion is a great example of that. Um, some of the work against uh, LGBTQ rights and same-sex marriage is, is a great example of that. Um, and, and really the rapprochement between conservative Catholics and Protestants largely came about through this alliance on issues of gender and sex. Yeah. Yeah. That's again, that's sort of, that's sort of an amazing story because even today, now you have these sort of Catholic and evangelical together kind of groups and they're, you know, the, even, even, I think it was even Jerry Falwell kind of right. Embraced, Mm -hmm. embraced Catholicism as part of his moral, uh, moral majority. Um, so, so yeah, very different kind of alliances here. You know, obviously, again, back to the first question, uh, the fundamentalists, the conservative evangelicals, and the Catholics on the side of tradition, while the mainline Protestants always open to kind of more modern, um, progressive kind of ideas. One final, one final question here, um, Marie, and you know, again, this book is is so so timely uh, in our in our day. It seems like every every piece of American history is timely today for one reason <laughs> or another. But 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 so so timely as we're you know we see eighty one percent of American evangelicals you know voting for Donald Trump. Uh, we see the sexual and and a lot of it around, right on sexual politics, abortion and and marriage and so forth. Um, what how does this, how does your book, right? We're really interested here at the podcast and how history informs kind of everyday life. How does, how does your book help us to understand, um, the rise of, of Donald Trump? Yeah. Uh, well, and the, 
the epilogue is, is all about that. Yeah, uh, because I had to that. write it. <laughs> it was right after the 2016 election. I was writing that. So that's what I had to write about. Um, I'm just curious uh, about that real quick. Did you, did you, was this planned or did you, were no, you were, so you were writing at the time. You didn't have to go back and. No, no, no. Okay. I mean, I, that, that epilogue was due. The whole book manuscript was like due in early February. Interesting. Um, <laughs> so, so it was totally unexpected. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's sort of, you know, so I think I, I analyzed that there and, and really, you know, I guess my, the idea, as you know, is that I, I really think it explained models of authority and of what we used to call patriarchy, which right. sounds like an old fashioned word now, but about what was really behind a lot of of those controversies over gender and sex had to do with uh, gender hierarchy yeah. and um, and and certain models of power, and I really think that's in part. I would reduce it to this, but in part, what happened that you saw such strong evangelical uh, support for for Trump that continues to this day, um, and so it's a really. I, I think we have to sometimes reframe our way of thinking about what yeah. they were saying about sex all along. How how do you explain uh, the large number of conservative women though who vote for, for, yeah. for Donald Trump? I mean, well, this has always been the case, and one yeah. thing I I try to say in this book is there were always women been fighting against women's rights. I right. mean, there was a very active anti-suffrage movement, you yeah. know, uh, c composed of women, and there were always men fighting for women's rights. This has always been the case, right. and it's yeah, still so the nothing case new today. here. Nothing and new. So, no, and and so I, I think there's always been that conservative woman's uh, desire to I don't know stand by her man and and wanting to uphold that gender hierarchy too. Right. Yeah. One of the things I really appreciated about the book is is the way in which you let your voices speak. Um, there is no sense, you know, uh, you know, there's no sense. I, I think in this book, for those of you who want to pick it up and read it, I mean, this is this is a good history book. I mean, there's no sense in which this is this is tilted one way or another. Billy was it Billy James Hargis? Is that his name? You know, mm -hmm. he he gets he gets as much. You know, we hear his voice, you know, just as much mm -hmm. as we hear the others. So it, it's it's again great book. Um, again, go out there and get this moral combat: how sex divided American Christianity and fractured American politics. Marie, thanks so much for taking time. I know you're very busy and we appreciate you coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you, John. It's been great to talk to you. Excellent. Have a good day. You too. Wish we had more time to talk about this. I mean, it really is a timely book and, you know, she tells the story so well. Yeah, well, and, I, and I think... Uh, Right there at the end of the interview, you know, she brings up just this kind of current of 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 women, conservative women who are opposing a lot of these developments. And, and you know, and, and that's always you ask the question. And that yeah. that has always been my curious thing. I, I think at no point have we had a political moment where so there is so much compelling evidence that the person has such disdain for women. And yet yeah, yeah. he still gets a majority of white women right. to vote for him. Yeah. And, and it seems, I think the Trump situation makes this particularly shocking, right? Yeah, that's what but, I mean. Yeah. But, you know, as Marie said, I mean, this is not something that's, that's particularly new here. So uh, again, I think another great episode. Um, 
is Nilsa, who just, by the way, just gave me a high five. I've been trying to get one from her all day, but was Nilsa okay with the monstrous birth commentary? Yeah, wait, I saw you back there cringing. What a day to, what a day to bring your two-year-old daughter yeah. to the studio. Between the subject matter of the interview and, and your comments on, right. on monstrous births. I mean, it definitely was a doozy, but uh, luckily I think a lot of that went over her head. Okay. Well, like, once again, thanks for listening to the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Get over there to the Patreon campaign. Please support Support us. We could really use your help to keep going here. Listen to us on the Recorded History Podcast. And in the meantime, may your way of improvement always lead home. This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewayofimprovement.com. The Way of Improvement Leads Home is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Check out the other podcasts on the network by heading over to recordedhistory.net. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice, so others may more easily find this podcast. And let's continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Follow us at TWOILH Podcast. The podcast was brought to you through the generous support of Gretchen Adams, Kate Logan, Lisa DeGuardi, and Ron Schooler. Also, many thanks to our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. The podcast was recorded at the High Center Studios of Messiah College. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, R. Marie Griffith. Our studio producer is Josh Lowry. Our intern is Nilsa. I've been your producer, Drew Durley Hermeling, and your host is John Fia. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.